so I'm going to stick to that. So as you come in and the doors are closing and you find your seats, let's start this the right way and let us bow in prayer, talk to our Almighty God. Heavenly Father, we love you, praise you, and glorify your name. Your name is above all, and at one time in the future, and it may not be too far from now, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And we look forward to that moment. We know that that is not, that is not tomorrow, though, and that there, will be a, there will be things in between. And, and there are some necessities that must take place, biblically speaking, that you have told us that have to happen. And all of this revolving around the return of your son to do exactly what he said he was going to do. And we know that there are many reasons for that that you've given us. I pray that you give us some understanding as we look in your word today to, to be able to, to um, educate ourselves and to understand the, the conviction of why it is that he has to return. And as we look at that, that should change our lives. So I pray that we are, are sensitive to the conviction of the Holy Spirit, that we are sensitive to the, your word and the conviction that is brought about by that. And that it changes us as believers so that we conduct ourselves differently in this world, living with this hope that we have, but understanding the judgment that comes with that same hope. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, so this morning as we continue our whys of the study, Pastor Kevin said, so are you getting into the text today? I said, no, not yet. It takes time. It takes a little bit more time for me sometimes, but... The whys of this study, and if you recall from last week, we looked at why we study this. Why are we studying this at all? And there is a blessing that is associated with, with studying the, the book of Revelation. There is a blessing in studying God's Word generally. And what we discovered was it draws us further into Scripture. When we, when we read this, it draws us further into what God's Word says as a whole, is a complete text as we look at it about his return and the culmination of history as we know it, but it also gives us hope and it, it, it gives us that strengthening in our faith and we've talked about all of those things. Today we are going to transition into why he must return and maybe slightly into the premillennial view, but I, I kind of, I'll just tell you, I, I kind of doubt it. I don't know that we'll get there this week, that might be next week, we'll, we may touch on it, we'll see what my pacing looks like. But this, this question why Jesus must return, is not a question that can be answered in one point. As a matter of fact, I'm going to bring up several, and that's not the full list. There are so many reasons, biblically, why Jesus must return that I could not possibly cover them even in a, in a several-week series. That is just how relevant this topic is in Scripture, why he must return. And I thought, to kick us off today, we could turn to 2 Peter chapter 3 because this is a question and this is a category that many people fall into. A very key passage to this discussion of the return of Jesus Christ, the return of the King, and his reign on earth. So turn to 2 Peter chapter 3. Peter addresses this very topic. Now, when we look at this particular passage, 1 through 4, it is a more... Uh, lengthy passage in just the first four verses. We're going to address, after I show you a few startling statistics, we're going to address verses five on in a little while today. But first, let's just focus on 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. 
And you're going to see that this is something that many people around us in our world, in America and beyond, would certainly think. This is the way they would think. And Peter does this right off the bat here as he's, he's introducing this section. Keep in mind, chapter breaks weren't in there in the original text. But as he introduces this section of his letter, he, he has a reminder here. And it's a good reminder for us. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved believer. In both of them, I am stirring up you, up your sincere mind by way of reminder. And before we go any further, that's exactly what we do in Sunday school, isn't it? It's exactly what we do when you hear the word preached from the pulpit, isn't it? He is reminding us of things that maybe some of you who have been in Christ for decades, longer than I've been alive, we continue to need, and I'm not hacking on any of you there, I'm, I'm, there's some of you who I've been a believer longer than you've been alive too, but my point is this, we need to continually get sincere reminders about the, the Word of God and the truth that is found in Scripture in not just Peter's letters, but all of Scripture. And he is saying this, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. And we need to be reminded of things as well. That you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets, the prophecies, and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. The, the, The things uttered and spoke about the return of Christ by both Christ and his apostles all through the epistles, which we will look at today as well. This is all part of why he must come back. And he says this, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. Now keep in mind that term last days, and this is a good reminder, by the way, as we approach the book of Revelation, the last days from a theological perspective is this entire 2,000-year period between the ascension and his return. So it's not just, oh, the last couple of years before the, the return of Christ. The last days have, have been going on for a long time. And you may think, well, 2,000 years, that, how do we categorize that as days? Remember, for the Lord, and this is Peter's own words, a day is like a 1,000 years, and a 1,000 years is like a day. When you look at the perspective of eternity, 2,000 years is not that long. And we are in that last 2,000 years, last days. So this has been going on since Peter's day. It was happening in Peter's day 2,000 years ago. And it is definitively happening now. What is it that I'm saying is happening? Scoffers will come following their own sinful desires. And they will say, people say this today. They said it during Peter's day. Where is the promise of his coming? Ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were. From the beginning of creation. All right, that is a statement you will hear people say. You will hear almost verbatim people say that today. You will hear people in the church say that. And it, it's, it's not surprising to us that people would say, oh, you, got, you Christians talk about the return of Christ. You believers are always hoping in this. It's, it's a crutch for you. It's a pie-in-the-sky thought. You'll hear people say that. And that's true. There are a lot of people in this world, not just America, that would fall into that and they would scoff. They would make fun of our blessed hope. They would do this. They wouldn't believe it because they don't believe the rest of this book. They don't believe that Jesus died and rose again. They don't believe that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. They don't believe in the most simple things of what we believe. So that's not a surprise. However, with that in mind, I was kind of surprised by a Pew Research poll that was done less than a year ago. And this is going to surprise you too. 
Now, there's two polls that I'm going to work, actually, there's three that I'm going to work with to kind of help explain things. Because when I thought about this, I thought to myself, the percentages in America, maybe the most scoffing of all places, I don't know, but you'd think that not many people believe that Jesus is going to return in our country. You'd think that maybe not too many of them. But as you start digging into this, it's a surprising number. Now, before we get to that number, let me show you this particular one. And I know this is very difficult to see. It's a little small, so I'll read it to you. But the percentages of Christians in our country, and this was done in 2022. This is the last time Pew Research asked this type of question. But here's their conclusion of this. Only a few decades ago, a Christian identity was so common among Americans that it could almost be taken for granted. As recently as the early 1990s, about 90% of U.S. adults identified themselves as Christians. Now, keep this in mind, those 90% weren't all Christians. Just identifying yourself as a Christian in America doesn't mean that much. If you identify yourself as a Christian in Iran, that, that might mean something. Or in China, or in North Korea, that, that might mean something. Here, it doesn't mean as much. However, it is significant that 90% of Americans claimed to be Christians in the 90s. That's a huge number. Now, if you notice, it says here, but today, and this is as of last year, about two-thirds of adults are Christians, somewhere in the 62 to 67 percent. People claim to be Christians, and that number has been dwindling over the last several decades, and, and it continue, will continue to do so. The change in America's religion composition is largely the result of large numbers of adults switching out of the religion in which they were raised to become religiously unaffiliated. Now, again, that's not a surprise to me because claiming to be a Christian with the wrong thoughts about Christianity and about salvation in the gospel and then being disillusioned by that, I'm not shocked. Of course they would be. Of, of course they would be. It's not truth that they're embracing. They're, they're embracing some version of Christianity that, that is false. As a matter of fact, it's from the pit of hell. And so we see this, and unfortunately in America... The, the churches that, are, that, that have been kind of pushing this have been getting even more press, even more airplay, and it hurts the concept of who a true believer is. But you look at some of these numbers, it's, I know it's hard to see here, but the article that I took this from in the Pew Research data, it's really a shame because, and this is just a year old, the, the numbers between 20 and 29 are are really startling. Only about 50% on the average of, of adults in America in that age range claim to be a Christian at all, to even claim to be a Christian. If you're in your 20s in this day and age, most, most, most adults do not claim to be a Christian. Now, as you get into these older ranges, it's, it's still up in that 70, 80% range. All right, that's our setup. A lot of people claim to be a Christian in our country. 60 to 70% of people claim to be a Christian. So another Pew Research poll, and this one is even more recent, said this. I was shocked. I was shocked about this. Here's the question. The general American public, this is not amongst Christians. This is the general American pu public. They believe about Jesus' return to, to, to earth. 55% of Americans, American adults, believe that Jesus will come back. I'm shocked about that. When you look at our world and the decisions that are made from the political point of view to even in, in, in classrooms and in families, if they really understood 
what was going to happen when Jesus came back or why he's coming back, which we're going to look at today, that number wouldn't be that high. You just wonder, this 55%, we're going to look at a few other percentages here, what do they think he's going to do? What, what do you think, do they think he's going to come back and say? What is he going to try to accomplish? It's kind of a, a shocking number when I, when I looked at it. But then as we dig deeper into this, it may not be quite as shocking. Now, to kind of continue on in this, 75% of American Christians, so that's 67%, you know, we're getting into the weeds with numbers, 75% of American Christians believe in the second coming of Christ. Now, as you see this breakdown, it's kind of interesting. Uh, 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 black Christians, uh, historically black Christians, they, they have 86%. Most of them do believe in it. Uh, Protestants, 82%. Evangelicals, we would fall into that category, although that's a tough one to, to define as well. Very high, 92%. And then you have these other categories. So they've broken it down into different... We believe in general as a, as a group of Christians, but what's even more shocking is that there are 25% of people who claim to be a Christian who don't think Jesus is coming back at all, which is also kind of a shocking number. Let me continue on so we don't can get in, into the drudgery of the numbers. If we look at this, one in 10 U.S. adults believe Jesus will definitely come back in their lifetime. And this is not of Christians, this is just of those who are in America. Look at these numbers here. 22%, all U.S. adults, 41%. Of Christians, 22%. So there is a, you start trying to figure out these numbers, you start trying to understand this, there is a sense in people's minds that things are different or that things are going to come to an end. Now, I kind of chalk this up to how God created us. We know that eternity is put into the hearts of men. Okay, we know that. We also know that the sin nature in us and the nature around us is groaning for the return of the Lord, right? Even the sin nature, we know that, that we're corrupted, that we're, any of you who are past 30, okay, you, you know that your body ain't what it used to be. I was just talking about my, my arm keeps falling asleep, my shoulders hurt, I can't quite understand, is it this, it's that. My conclusion is I'm getting older because of my sin nature, I'm falling apart, okay, and it isn't going to get any better. Okay, they can give me all the drugs they want, but it's, I'm not going to be 33 again until the Lord returns and gives me a new body. It, it's, it, it's, I'm, my body's groaning for it. I think even the non-believer who knows nothing knows that this place is not the end. As a matter of fact, it's going to end, and then there must be something else. Eternity is put in the hearts of men. So this is pretty startling, interesting, fascinating information. But here's my conclusion. Most people know something's coming, and, and most people believe, in our country at least, I don't have the statistics for the world, that Jesus is returning, but here's what most people don't understand, even within the church. They don't know who Jesus is. They don't know what the Bible says about him, and they don't know the truth about what this really looks like. And this kind of, this particular slide here brings us back to a, a study that I've looked at before. Uh, you, you may remember this when we studied um, um, Lutzer's book. I tagged into this state of theology survey that uh, Ligonier Ministries does every two years. And this is the new data. So that was a couple years ago. The numbers have even gotten worse. Here's what I want to look at here. Of people who claim to be a Christian, what do they actually believe about the Bible? What do they believe about Jesus? And what do they believe about God the Father? 
So I've just picked, there's 35 statements that they ask these questions. It's an interesting study to look into on your own. But I'm just going to pick out three or four randomly that I think help us in this study. What do people think about Jesus? 55% of Americans think Jesus is coming back. But coming back to do what? It's an interesting thing. So number, one, number four, God learns and adapts to different circumstances. In other words, God changes over time. What do people in the United States believe about that? 69% agree or they're not sure. Yeah, maybe he probably, 70% of the country thinks, yeah, God changes as I change, as the world changes, as culture changes. He changes too. Now you think about how that might dictate what they think about the Lord's return. That Jesus returning now, he might be pretty pleased with how culture has changed because he's changed too. What he said in the Bible 2,000 years ago, he may have changed his mind about that. He might be pleased with homosexuality now. He might be pleased with transgender. He might be pleased with abortion now because he's changed. You see how that could work? So they might think Jesus coming back could actually be good because it would affirm their sinful thoughts because God's changed his mind about those things. Fascinating. That's all U.S. adults. Uh, uh, that's in the wrong place. That was supposed to be to set it, that up. Let's go on. U.S. adults, going back to four. Where did, these are all out of order. Number four, the, there we go, there we go, sorry. 57% of evangelicals agree that God changes. So of people who say they're an evangelical Christian, 57% of them agree that God changes. Now, as you look at this, I gave you some passages. We don't have time to look at all of these or any of these. But you know what they say about God and his changing. He doesn't. I, the Lord, do not change. And when we look at Israel and we look at the, the promise he makes to Israel, therefore, Israel, you are not consumed. That's a really important statement that God makes here. But it's more than that. If we think of this Isaiah 46 passage, God declares this, the end from the beginning... And from ancient times, the things that have not yet come. And he says, my, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all of my purposes. Everything I wrote and said I would do, I will do. It's going to happen. So when we think of these passages, all of them from Old to New Testament, it just reaffirms what we should know and what unfortunately 57% of evangelical Christians don't know are God does not change. So as we think about 55% of Americans think Jesus is coming back, they think a changing God is coming back. One that adapts to their desires, their lifestyle, and their culture. So keep that in mind. Do they really know who's coming back and why? That's the, that's the question. Statement three, God accepts the worship of all religions. It doesn't just have to be grace alone, Christ alone, because of Jesus' blood and work alone. It could be any kind of, any kind of worship any kind of religion if you just do it well well of those 55 percent who think jesus is coming back they think 78 percent of them think well it's really not a big deal which religion you pick you don't have to worship jesus when he comes back he'll be happy if you're a very good muslim a very good buddhist a very good atheist whatever it might be because he's gracious and loving and he's good with it so they don't understand who jesus is that's u.s adult findings evangelical findings very similar, 56% of Christians who are evangelicals, and this is new data, this is just getting worse, by the way. If you were to compare my numbers that I used a couple years ago in the study, these numbers are getting worse because of the teaching in the pulpit. 
That's what's going on. 56% of Christians agree with that. It's a scary thought. Do people really understand the Jesus that is coming back to this earth and why he's coming back? I would say they don't know. They don't know. There is only one way, the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by him. Statement number seven, Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. Of those 55%, 64% of the whole population, they agree he's not God. He's just a good guy, good teacher. Not God, not divine. Evangelicals, now I did give you the old number. Look at how that's increased in two years. Look at that. I, don't, I haven't given you all the numbers, but I thought this one was 13% in two years has increased that they have given into the idea that Jesus is not God. He's not divine. Just a few weeks ago, Pastor covered this from the pulpit, how it is so critical and essential that believers in Christ especially understand the divinity of Christ. 43% of U.S. evangelicals don't think Jesus is God. Do they really understand what he's going to do when he comes back? I don't think so. I don't think so. And you see these passages. By the way, you don't have to jot all this stuff. It'll be on the website. These will come up if, uh, when you watch this on Sermon Audio, if you choose to watch it. These slides will all be on there. Shocking numbers, right? Number 16, last one we'll look at. The Bible, like all sacred writings, contains helpful accounts of ancient myths, but it's not literally true. Not literally true. This has also gotten higher, even amongst U.S. adults. 53% agree it's not really true. The evangelical number has also gone up significantly. Look at that. From two years, 26% of evangelicals agree this isn't all divine, and it is not all essential, and it is all, not all necessary for me, and it's subject to change, and it's subject to interpretation, and it may not all be for me. It's a scary thought. And we look at the, the, definitive, the definitive passages that we see here about what Scripture really is. Don't have time to look into all of these, but... We should know these things. They should be certain for us. You start looking at these numbers, and that starts to explain why people might actually want Jesus to come back, but they want the wrong Jesus to come back. They might actually desire for, for Jesus to come back, but for the wrong reasons. And I think that's what maybe explains that 55% number. Sorry that I went through all those numbers, but I think that that might help us set the stage. Why is it important, then, to look at this? The key passage, back to 2 Peter, if you're still there, this is what people miss and we can't miss as we go into this study. We definitely can't miss this. So 2 Peter chapter 3, back to, we left off at verse 4, now we're at verse 5. So the scoffers, some say he's not coming back or your Jesus isn't coming back, but here's what they forget. They deliberately, and I think even the ones who claim he's coming back but say not the one you talk about, what do they do? They deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. Let's stop right there. This is Romans 1. And let's just think about how Romans 1 unpacks itself. What does Paul do? He talks about all these horrific sins, sexual sins, and how we got there. It's judgment because we didn't acknowledge the creator God. We know Romans 1. We know how this is working. They didn't acknowledge the Creator. And because you don't acknowledge the Creator, you don't acknowledge His authority, and you don't acknowledge His Word, and you don't acknowledge His plan, and you, you don't acknowledge his, his judgment when it comes. 
Back to the text, verse 6. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. Judgment came. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Don't overlook this one fact, beloved believer, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand years is a day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise. That's a key here. It's a promise that he's going to return. As some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but look at this, but all should reach repentance. Okay, now let's just think about this. This is the full culmination of the Lord's return. When Peter is discussing this, he's talking about the, the end of it, all of this, but none of this can end with a new heaven and a new earth and the Lord destroying the planet as we know it, judgment of the, those who have rejected him without him first coming back. So it's a, the full, complete understanding of this. But notice, the, co- the focus is, this is about judgment and this is about repentance. The 55% of the people who think Jesus is coming back in this country, trust me, are not thinking about those two things. That is not crossing their mind. They don't believe that they're going to be judged for who they are or their view of Christ. And they don't believe repentance has anything to do with it. Because they don't think they need to repent. And they don't even understand what the word means. So this is really an important piece to this. Look at how Peter finishes this. And he, he well, he doesn't finish this, but what we're going to finish of this. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up that dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. We'll get to verse 11 and later next week, and what we should do with that. But this is going to come on people, even though they think Jesus is coming back, even though they believe that there's some sort of an end to this, they, they have a sense of it, they don't really understand. And they don't understand because they don't read this, and they don't embrace this, and they don't sit under teaching of this, and they don't let it convict them. And they don't put it into practice. It's what it comes down to. So as we break down this, we may not get through this today, but this is what the Bible says about why it demands the Lord to come back. Jesus Christ in the flesh has to come back to planet Earth, and he has to come back for these reasons and many more, and many more. So let's start breaking these down, get your Bibles ready, and let's start looking at a few of these passages. Some of them we need to go to, and I want to go to these. Go to Psalm chapter 2. First reason that I see in Scripture, and I stole this from somebody, and I don't remember who because it was too long ago, but it was probably MacArthur. But these are, these are key passages as to why Jesus must return. Psalm 2, 6 through 9. Let's go through these together. I'm going to make you... Work through these today, and I think it'll just keep you awake. After all that data, I think it's important to kind of get your fingers moving now. Psalm chapter 2. Psalm chapter 2. Let's see what the Word of God says about why Jesus must reign. Psalm 2, 6 through 9. Here's what God says about his anointed, about his, this predicted the Messiah. Psalm 2, 6 through 9. As for me, God speaking, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill, in Israel, in Jerusalem. I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ooh, that's Old Testament. Amazing. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Incredible. This is what was predicted, that the son of God would reign on earth in Israel, physically there, 
You shall break them with the rod of iron and dash them into pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Remember that connection from last week? This is all about fearing the Lord. How you view God's word and his son. And notice verse 12. This gives you chills when you read it. Keep in mind, this is, this is written a thousand years plus before Christ. Kiss the son. Does that give you chills when you hear that? It does me. Lest he be angry and you perish in the way. Doesn't sound like the Jesus most the, the Jesus most people think of. That he'll consume you, that the son would be angry and you could perish because of him. And yet the words of Christ would reiterate that. The words of Christ would tell you, be warned, fear me. Don't fear those who can't kill, who can kill the body but can't kill the soul. Fear the one who can kill your body and send your soul to hell. Jesus was referring to himself. Okay, that is a scary thought, but that's the way. Do you think that 55% think Jesus is coming back? Is this kind of Jesus? Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. He loves you. There's grace. There's, there's absolute salvation for those who believe on him. But you should fear him. You should fear him. Think about that. It's a demand. This is physically on earth, reigning on earth, amongst the nations, this is coming. Isaiah chapter 9. Got to read this one because of the season, right? Isaiah chapter 9. Most of you know this because we read it this time of year. But it's really not fitting for this time of year, honestly. To a degree it is. Isaiah chapter 9, 6 and 7. You know it. I hear, hear you turning, Mom. I'm going to start without you. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. Tis the season, Right? And the government shall be upon his shoulders. That's where the Christmas stuff stops. Okay, right there. We have one line from here that we talk about for Christmas. But the government is not on his shoulders. It is not. Right now, as we speak, the God of this world, Satan, has dominion here. Now, it's been given to him by the Father. Don't, don't think that he somehow has whipped or beat Jesus or somehow they're in competition. This is all part of his providential plan. But for the moment, he's reigning here. He has authority here. And we even see that, that exercised at the temptation of Christ. As we go through this text, though, it says this, the government shall be on, upon his shoulders. That's coming. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government. He's not reigning here. He has no government here yet. This is not a theocracy yet. But it's telling us that it's coming and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David, specifically in Jerusalem. The throne of David is a specific place. Throne of David over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice, with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Just like the zeal of the Lord of the hosts crushed his son. Same idea here. This is definitive. This has to happen just like the crucifixion had to happen. He has to reign. It has to happen. And we can continue to go on through these. We're going to take one more. And again, this is for your reference. I want you to go to Isaiah chapter 61. This one's important for what we are setting the stage for. Go to Isaiah chapter 61. And as you turn there, you're already in Isaiah. This is referred, this particular passage, Jesus refers to in Luke chapter 4. And this is a, an incredible moment in Christ's ministry, early, 
where he is in his hometown and he is going into the temple, or the synagogue rather, to do the reading of the day. He didn't choose this. This is what was up providentially. And Isaiah chapter 61 was up. And this is this famous instance where Christ stands up, reads it, and he makes this statement after he reads part of this passage. And he says, today, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. You guys recall that particular event in Christ's life? Well, here's what the passage actually says. Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 through 3. The Spirit of the Lord, God is upon me, Jesus said that, because the Lord has anointed me. Jesus said that to bring good news to the poor, he said that. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prisons to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He stopped right there. He dropped the mic, if there was a mic, and said, this has been fulfilled in your hearing today. Now, at the end of this passage, by the way, they wanted to kill him because they realized what he was saying and who he was claiming to be. But he stopped in the middle of not just a verse, but a sentence. He didn't read any further because this is what he was coming for in his first advent. But you and I are going to read further. Look at what it says. It says, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, verse 2, and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. He didn't read that part. You know why? Because he wasn't going to do that in his first advent. But if he said this is done, it's, it's going to happen eventually. He said, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. Here's what I believe. We're going to see this fulfilled too. And it's got to happen. Jesus is putting a stamp of approval on Isaiah's prophecy here. I wrote this through Isaiah. This part has been fulfilled the next part will be too. His vengeance is coming. His wrath is coming. His judgment is coming. What did we look at? What are people missing? What did Peter remind us of? God's judgment. They forgot, and we got to remind ourselves, judgment has already happened on this earth, and people have already forgotten because they forgot the Creator, and they forgot His words, and they, they don't believe what He says. This is a critical... God's words demand that Jesus come back and establish his kingdom. He demands it. And we could look at so many more, and we will through this study. But those are just a few. The teaching of Christ demands it. Not just what we saw in Luke chapter 4. That certainly demands it. But all of these incredible examples in, in Luke chapter, well, it's in Luke 21, but it's also in Matthew 24. I'm not going to look at all of these. I just want to give them to you for reference. We're going to look at the Revelation passages but all of these are examples Christ gives of a real, literal time when the master comes back and what are you doing while he's gone. All of them. Every one of these parables and more refer to Christ saying, be ready, be working, take my word, understand the gospel. You need to, to react to it properly because I'm coming back. And in every one of those, he's the master. Every one of those, he's... He's the one who gives us that opportunity while he's gone. In an unknown hour, he shows back up, every one of these. And he does this in this Olivet Discourse to warn us. He's literally coming back. And that's when we look at 24, 27, he talks about literally coming back to planet Earth. But let's look at these Revelation passages real quick. Let's just run through Revelation in Christ's words. Now I want you to notice something. We see chapter 2 and then chapter 22. Okay, so he's talking to the church in chapter 2 and chapter 3, and he's talking to the church in chapter 22. In the middle, the church is not there. We'll get to that later as well. But look at Jesus' words, his teaching about he is coming back, 
is essential. So real quick, Revelation chapter 2, verse 16, here's what Christ says. He says, therefore, repent, speaking to the church at Pergamum, if not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. I'm coming soon, he says there, 2.16, 3.11, next, next verse. Jesus talking about coming soon, by the way. Chapter 1, we see it as well, but we're, we looked at that one last week. 3.11, he says here in Church of Philadelphia, I'm coming soon. Hold fast what you have, have, what you have so that no one may seize your crown. I'm coming soon. Two churches right at the beginning, which we saw last week. I'm coming soon. Go to chapter 22, verse 7. 22-7, the end. So church is back in this. Chapter 22, verse 7. Look at what Jesus says again. Behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecies of this book. I'm coming soon. 22.7, 22.12, same chapter. He's, he's redundant with this. Behold, I'm coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay everyone for what he has done. That's reward. We'll talk about that later. And then 20, very end of this, chapter 22, verse 20. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Jesus seems to think he's coming back. He thinks he's coming back, and he tells John in the very last book, which he also adds to this book, don't add anything from it and don't take anything away from it. He seems to think he's coming back. And he writes this to you and I, saying you should read it, and you should ponder it, and you're blessed if you do. And all throughout it, he tells, tells you and he tells me, I'm coming back. And it's soon. It's coming soon. Jesus believes he's coming back. The Father believes he's coming back. They both claim it, and if we believe what they say is true, it demands it. But it's not just those two. The Holy Spirit, the third part of this trinity, who had all the apostles write what they wrote, every single one of them, keep in mind what Peter says, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Yes, these were men, Peter, Paul, James, John, but all of these are the Holy Spirit telling us this. Let's just go through some of the highlights. These are not all of them, by the way. Why Jesus must come back. The Father believes it and demands it. The Son believes it, and the Holy Spirit does too. Here's what we see. What we think of as we consider this. Paul says, the Holy Spirit says through Paul, we're eagerly believers waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're waiting for that. He was 2,000 years ago. We are today. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, the Lord himself will descend from heaven. Now, that's talking about the rapture. We'll get to that in a moment later on. Paul and, and to the Philippian church, our citizenship is in heaven. From it, we await a Savior. They believe he's coming back. We await a Savior. Our citizenship is in heaven. He's going to take us to be with him. In Colossians, when Christ, who is your life, appears, you'll appear with him in glory. The second coming, you're going to come back with him in glory. Hebrews 9, the author of Hebrews Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly awaiting for him, to rapture us out of here. James 5, 7 through 8, James believes this, you also be patient, establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Jesus is coming back, the epistles all proclaim it. Something else though, when we talked about this and we talked about the 55%, this is the one they, they really want to avoid, I think. At all costs, the corruption and the sin in the world demands it. Demands it. 
We look at this particular passage, we know that Jesus has the authority to judge on earth. John 5 tells us that, covered that quite a while ago. But look at what Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 7, or 1, 7 through 10. Fascinating passage when we look at this, compiled with what Paul also writes in Ephesians chapter 5. Very similar passages. We're going to look at both of them, and I got this up on the screen for you. When the Lord Jesus is revealed, this is his coming. So the context is his coming. So he's coming back because the, the, the word of God demands it. The Holy Spirit demands it. Christ demands it. But he's coming with heaven, uh, from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as we go through these and we look at this from Ephesians 5 here in just a moment, notice the reason why vengeance is coming. People have rejected the gospel. We know the antidote. The reason why this is a blessed hope is because Jesus saved you. Because by grace you were saved through faith and this wasn't of yourself. It's a gift of God, not by works. No one, of, no one in here can boast. Jesus saved you, so his vengeance isn't coming for you. But you know this, vengeance is coming for those who didn't love his gospel, who don't know God, and they rejected him. Vengeance is coming. And it's coming when he comes back. And judgment is coming. The corruption of the world demands this. And as we think about this, and I've quoted this many times, this is cosmic treason when you reject the gospel. And cosmic treason is dealt with by the king. And he is going to deal with all who have rejected him. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. It's sad and horrible to think about, but it should motivate you as a believer to proclaim the gospel. Because there is an antidote that's built right into the verse. Obey the gospel. It's obeying the gospel. Repent, believe on Jesus Christ alone for your salvation. Paul continues this thought in Ephesians 5. He says, many, you may be sure of this. This is certain. Be sure of this. Everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or is covetous, as an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. Because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Before you get high and mighty and think, well, I'm not any of those. Yes, you are. Yes, you were. And some of you still may be struggling with this. Again, this comes back to what we just read, the gospel. Have you obeyed the gospel? Because this is all of us. This is Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. This was you. This was me. And we still struggle with our sin nature. God is coming to judge this for those who reject the gospel. This is us. He has to come back to satisfy this. Colossians 3, 5 through 7. You see this. For the, the reaction to all of this now, put to death, therefore, believer, what is earthly in you, the sexually immoral, impure passions, evil desire, covetousness, same list, right, which is idolatry, on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. He's coming to deal with this. So don't act this way, believer. Don't act this way, believer. There's an old song, old Christian contemporary song from the 80s. If you believe he's coming back tomorrow, then live like he's coming back today. It's a good reminder. It's not scripture, but it's a good reminder. If you believe he's coming back tomorrow, you really believe that, believer? Put to death these things. Go to war. I, pray, I say this and pray this for me and you, because we're all dealing with this. Sin is creeping at the door. It's right there. If you know that this is true, that he's coming with vengeance because of our sin, then live differently. He's changed you. He's given you a new heart. Be a different man. Be a different woman. Be obviously different. 
And of course, we see the same redundant types of things here in Jude and in Revelation talking about this. It demands it. The corruption in this world that we are all a part of demands it. And then we see this, and this is going to transition us into next week. It's actually a good spot for us because this will help me to transition as to why we're going to talk premillennial here and why we, we believe that that is the accurate way to view this. Jesus must return because of his promises to Israel. Okay? All of what we've said is true and many more. But this time of Jacob's trouble is about Jacob. It is about bringing vengeance and judgment. It is about the corruption in the world. It is, it's all about that too. But Israel had promises made to him. And, and these promises must happen. They must happen. Go to Zechariah chapter 12, and we're just only going to go to Zechariah to end this, but I want you to see our God. And why this matters to you as a believer is essential, especially as we consider what's going on with Israel as we speak. And we, we have naysayers saying that that is not relevant. It is very relevant. Now, I can't tell you how it's all going to play out exactly in the moment. I can tell you how it's going to play out in eternity and how it's going to play out in the full view because God's word tells us because he's so good to tell us. But just look at in Zechariah 12 just for a moment and then we'll look at one passage in 13 and then just very briefly all of chapter 14. But look at this, just some basic promises. Zechariah 12:10. Look at this. Notice this. It says, "I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas of mercy, so that when they look on me, on whom they have pierced, when he returns, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn." Now, this is partially fulfilled at the crucifixion. There were people who were looking at him and seeing him crucified and pierced, fulfilling prophecy. This will be ultimately fulfilled when he returns. And the Jewish people realize, and I preached on this a few years ago in Zechariah chapter 12, they will realize they missed it. They'll realize that generations of, of Jewish men and women, their own kin, have missed it, and they didn't realize that Christ was their Messiah. But he'll pour out a spirit of grace on them, just like he did you if you're in Christ. He has a plan for Israel, and he promises that this will happen. And right now, Romans 11 tells us they're in a partial hardening. We won't look at that today. But there's a promise he will save them. Same way he saves you, by the way. It's by grace. Grace is used here. Grace, faith. Chapter 13, verse 1. On that day, there shall be a fountain opened up for the house of David, specifically Israel, and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. That's a specific place, folks. We take this literally. Jesus has to return to Israel. We already saw this. And it's going to happen in Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. Yeah, it's, it's, it's an, an incredible thing that we look at the, the detailed prophecies of Israel back in their land and in peace. But you know what the most important promise to Israel is? Is saving them from their sins. And that's the most important one for you too. Zechariah chapter 14 is this incredible moment where the king returns and destroys his enemies. And incredible vengeance is taking place. But you realize if chapter 12 and 13 weren't there, 14 wouldn't re really make any difference. Because they wouldn't be saved. Eternally speaking, they wouldn't be saved. The most important promise Israel makes, or God makes to Israel, is that they're going to they're gonna be saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. And that has to happen. And the way he's going to do that is, is his return. 
Now, how he works that out providentially, how that is, we have this partial hardening so that you and I as Gentiles can be brought in. We can be grafted in. We don't have time to look at that today. We'll look at it next week. But this is an incredible promise made to Israel that hinges on his return. They will see him return, and Zechariah 12, 13, and 14 will be fulfilled to the letter, exactly to the letter. But you realize the most important piece of this for the Israelites is not their land, and it's not the peace, and it's not prosperity. It's they're saved from their sins. And they, they have obeyed the gospel, and they believed on Jesus. And eternally speaking, that's the most incredible promise that they could possibly give, be given, just like it is for you. Jesus has to return for this to happen for them. And he has to return for this to be true of you, because if he said it, he's going to do it. And that's our Savior, and that's our God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for these examples, and there are more. We know that you must return. And this study is essential for us because we need to know why you must return. I pray that we not fall into the category of so many other Americans and and citizens of the world worldwide that maybe believe you're coming, but we don't know why. We should know why, and we should know what your word says. I pray that it convicts us and changes us so that if we believe these things are such, that we should live lives and go to war with these sins that you are coming to, to make vengeance upon, to judge We know that's true. So I pray that we don't live lives that way, that we live lives that represent you well so that gives us opportunity to proclaim the gospel, to bring the most important promises to bear in our lives and to the lives of the people around us, that they can be saved, that their sins can be forgiven. And we know that salvation belongs to you. So we pray for that today, that if there are some here who have not yet put their faith in your son, that you would move in their heart, that you would convict them, that today you'd save them. And that by grace through faith in your son's work on the cross, they could be saved today. Pray for that today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.